this looks like a classic Chinese influence operation, a classic Chinese Communist Party influence operation. They approach the family members of high officials in foreign governments that they seek to influence and offer those family members lucrative business deals that will then uh, cast a, a China in a favorable light. So that, as we see in this case, Hunter Biden gets very wealthy, earning millions of dollars through investment partnerships and uh, other business deals. We see email threads talking about million-dollar consulting fees, multi-million-dollar finder fees, introduction fees, for doing virtually nothing but hooking people up, hooking up members of the Chinese Communist Party who want to get a tour of the White House so they can then post on their Facebook pages pictures of them in the White House or with Vice President Biden. And for this, Hunter Biden earns millions of dollars. These are the type of operations that the Chinese Communist Party is famous for. We saw just a couple of weeks ago a information dump of a database. The Chinese Communist Party has been uh, accumulating information on family members of millions of people around the world, of high government officials, so they can then influence them by buying them off. The words of the, I'm sad to say, late Curtis Ellis, former senior policy advisor to President Trump and a true American patriot. Curtis Ellis passed away yesterday evening. We have an obituary for Curtis on the website on the nationalpulse.com and we will miss him terribly. Curtis Ellis passed away last night. I, uh, I had the privilege of speaking to his significant other earlier on today, and of course the uh, big stress is on carrying forward Curtis's message. Like you heard there, a real fighter against the Chinese Communist Party, a real fighter against corruption, and a real fighter against the Americans, I should say so-called Americans, who are so quick to sell out their country. Joe and Hunter Biden included. Well, welcome to another episode of The National Pulse. I'm Raheem Kassam, Editor-in-Chief of TheNationalPulse.com, broadcasting to you on this Monday, February the 15th, the year of our Lord 2021, from a gloomy, glum, and freezing cold Capitol Hill. Want to dial in now your, the audience favourite, which is Natalie Winters, our senior reporter at thenationalpulse.com, joining us now, hopefully joining us now, with some of the latest scoops that we've got up on the National Pulse website. Yeah. I want to make sure that we are uh, connecting, connecting here with Natalie. Messenger audio. Oh, there you go. There is the messenger audio. So how do I get this into the... Uh, the reason messenger I like audio. to use messenger audio is because it's way, way, way higher quality than um, cell phones, believe it or not. Let's see if we can get her in here. Natalie, did you hear us? Yes, hello. Oh, perfect. And and you only dialed into the show, so the phone <laughs> rang three times there. So that was that was top quality production here on the National Post Podcast. I'm glad. <laughs> We're going to make it a thing. So for the audience wondering what the heck just happened, the point is I dial people live into the show. It adds a little bit of, you know, keep Raheem on his toes to the whole thing, which frankly I love. Uh, but also it means that I don't have to do post-production of the show. We record it live, we put it out, and therefore you get it as quickly as humanly possible. If I was sitting around, you know, dragging and dropping things into different, you know, folders and programs and everything to be to do post-production, you wouldn't get this show until the next day after we do these interviews and have these discussions. So I don't do any of that, and uh, it's all raw, and it's and I like to think it's about as high a quality as you can get. I know some of the audience, Natalie, hates when I give production notes on the show, but there you go, some more production notes for you. Natalie, um, before you joined us, uh, uh, I played a little clip from 
our departed friend uh, Curtis Ellis talking about the Chinese influence operations, specifically mentioning Joe and Hunter Biden. But of course, that is not the only uh, or perhaps even the most important influence operation that the Chinese Communist Party has been peddling over the last couple of years. The World Health Organization is right up there as well. And you have another big scoop today. Uh, Talk us through uh, who the latest WHO uh, investigator of the COVID-19 origins is and why perhaps we should second-guess her judgment. Sure. So the individual in question today uh, is a woman by the name of Marion Koopman. I I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. You are. Uh, Okay, good. But she was one of the really top investigators leading the World Health Organization's trip inquiry into the origins of COVID-19 in China. She did media rounds before and after. Uh, Of course, one of those interviews was done on Chinese state television. But interestingly enough, something that she failed to disclose, and really the media failed to, to highlight, is the fact that she has ties to the Chinese Communist Party, specifically in the form of serving as a scientific advisor to the CDC uh, branch in the province of Guangdong, which is obviously in China. Uh, if you look, she's listed on their website. Uh, it's unclear exactly how long she has held the role and if she still holds it, although a bio on the World Health Organization website, uh, she was part of a scientific advisory group uh, for, for another endeavor there. The bio reads, uh, let me get the, as a member of the scientific advisory board of the Centers for Disease Control of Guangdong, China, she has advised on the building of the laboratory capacity for emerging infectious disease detection in this region and has ongoing research collaborations trying to unravel emergence and spread of viruses through the animal production chain in this region. So, again, that's kind of a similar overlap to what you, you saw with regards to Peter Doshak. Wait, hang on, hang on, hang on. Just slow down a little bit here. We've got all the time in the world. Um, I want to go through that again very quickly because you you blitzed through that. This is a document entitled Scientific Advisory Group Members from the World Health Organization, which contains her professional biography and reveals she has served as a, quote, member of the Scientific Advisory Board of the Centers for Disease Control of Guangdong, China. And, and then it goes on to, to state what she did there, right? And it's specifically talking about infectious disease detection in the region and the spread of viruses through the animal production chain in the region. You know, let's go back to the basic here, Natalie. They're trying to show that this came either from a foreign source. They've even, you know, cited, hey, maybe it came in some frozen meat from Australia, because, you know, China's obviously known for its big koala imports, right? For, for <laughs> famous for koala burgers. But, but they're also, their fallback, which was their original position, is that this actually came from a bat and the bat was eaten in a soup at the market, whatever it was, right? And so, of course, they bring in somebody who has worked for them, taken money from them, and deals in the spread of viruses through the animal production chain. Have they, did they bring anybody in who's a specialist in, oh, I don't know, viruses leaking out of Chinese labs? Or frankly, anyone who doesn't have ties to the Chinese Communist Party. I, I'm going to make an effort to go through each and every one of the researchers that they, they had on this trip, because I really think it is interesting. And this dovetails with, I think, the second part of the report but really how the ecosystem of scientific research, specifically with regards to gain-of-function research and these SARS-CoV viruses, with regards to animals and human transmission, so many of the studies that Marianne Koopman is listed on and even Peter Doshak, you can trace the funding explicitly to the Chinese government, sometimes the Chinese military. So these people are, are directly on the payroll of the Chinese Communist Party. That's not a hyperbolic statement. Uh, and they're specifically advising the institutes and the entities that are now embroiled in this whole controversy as to where the coronavirus originated. So they're certainly not impartial jurors as to the origins of the virus. And I think it's really interesting when you see the media uh, portraying them as, as these paramount voices with absolutely no bias, 
Uh, of course, I mean it's explicit. it's like anything, isn't it? Yeah. It's like it's like it's like reporters are unbiased, and I've been having a big back and forth with a Sky News reporter about that today. And I said to him, "Look, I would be willing to disclose all of my political affiliations, all of my political donations, and all of my philosophical beliefs, you know, transparently. Transparently, would you?" And the same applies here to these so-called health experts. And I was saying this morning uh, uh, to Steve, I said to him, "I think." More than media, more than any other sector, in fact, more than Hollywood, more than the banking sector, more than all of it, I think health and biotech are the most infiltrated industry in the United States of America, Natalie. I don't know if you agree with that. You're not, you know, don't feel under any duress to agree with me on that. But the more we scratch beneath the surface here, the more it seems that almost every single person in this space has either been a recipient of Chinese Communist Party grants or worked openly, openly with the Chinese Communist Party, their CDC or, or, or other labs around the country and so forth. What, what, what do you say to that? Well, you actually took the words oh, right out of my mouth, frankly, and frankly, you took the words out of uh, Xi Jinping's oh, mouth. There's a, 20, there's, there's a 2013 quote from him that I think we included in a recent article where it says, high-end science and technology is a national weapon in modern times. And I think you are totally right And that scientific research is really one of these key areas that the Chinese Communist Party seeks to exploit and weaponize. To, to really help their crusade to kind of overtake the world with these covert influence operations uh, and infiltration operations. Mm-hmm. And I think there's no better example than what you see with the World Health Organization that is completely kneecapped, completely you know neutered of any ability to effectively report on the origins of the coronavirus because even the world's premier and most you know eminent doctors and virologists, even they're compromised by the Chinese Communist Party. So you can't even get an independent, verified, legitimate, uh, non-compromised by the Chinese Communist Party group of experts uh, to go to go and evaluate what's going on and where the virus came from. And last thing on that, I think it's sure. also interesting too, is how you know the, the Democrats love to say that Republicans are anti-science and that we don't understand any facts and data. They're facts first. But they seem to have this approach to, to the Chinese Communist Party where they just take their numbers at face value and they say, you know, oh, China's doing a better job of tackling the pandemic than we are because we believe the data reports coming directly out of the Chinese Communist Party. Whereas I've really only seen mass efforts from House Republicans and Senate Republicans mm-hmm. to really get to the bottom of what's going on. So it seems that Republicans understand that, you know, science, at least to the Chinese Communist Party is certainly some a, a weapon. Uh, you know, some, some, some Republicans. I, you know, frankly, yeah. Natalie, we wish it was all of them, right? But it's not. Yeah. It's, actually, it's actually very few of them. But you're right, more more than Democrats. Not that this should be even uh, a partisan issue, Natalie. And, and speaking of, you know, uh, 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 mass... I want to talk about Joan Donovan for a second because Joan Donovan is <laughs> is is at this center that has been smearing Dr. Lee Mingyan, somebody who's put herself in the line of fire to try and whistleblow. I don't want to do it all on the show today because we we just don't mm-hmm. have the time to do it all. And actually, it actually warrants a a very long look at a lot of the data and evidence and links that you've borne out in your reporting here. But just tell our audience briefly, and then I'll refer them to the website to read it in full. You've ex- Expose yet another Harvard Center, which appears to be not in bed with, but totally in league, you know, step by step in league with the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, so this is a Harvard Center and specifically an, an offshoot organization that focuses primarily on misinformation and disinformation campaigns. So you would think in that realm, the, the top subject they would want to be reporting on would be how the Chinese Communist Party has had a documented, well-documented at that cover-up of the coronavirus and its spread and its spawn. But however, they chose to instead focus on, as you said, Dr. Li Yan's report on the origins of COVID-19 that is coming from a Chinese Communist Party-owned uh, and operated lab. And they really attempt to debunk her stories. But interestingly enough, and Frankly, I'm not surprised they rely on scientific reports that are cited by studies backed by the Chinese Communist Party and the research, or rather the research center itself has for over two decades hosted fellows from the Chinese Communist Party, put out joint reports from state-run universities that have been accused of spying and hacking the United States and other Western governments. 
So it's really, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, talk. I mean, you say really interesting. When when I sent that to you, with the hope that you would find, you know, one or two things, avenues of of, of journalistic pursuit. You know, that's the the job of an as an editor <laughs> is you you look at a story, you look at a, an emerging uh, uh, you know pattern of facts, and you go, okay, this might be interesting. It might yield some information. But Natalie, what you came back with. I opened my laptop. I started looking at this story as you'd formulated it. Ladies and gentlemen, you've got to you've got to read this. It's called Harvard Center Attacking COVID Lab Theory Has Extensive Financial and Personnel Links with the Chinese Communist Party. Natalie, what you brought me back was the equivalent of dumping six reams of printed paper on my desk <laughs> and you know, and you can hear the thud that goes alongside it and going, "Hey, how's that for a night's work?" It's extraordinary. It warrants its own entire show. So we'll do that this week, Natalie. Would would you do us the honour of coming back? I would love to come back. (laughs) Natalie, we thank you for your time. Thank you for your amazing reporting. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, you've got to check this stuff out. Marion Koopman's the lead story at thenationalpulse.com right now. And a massive, massive story about about the uh, Harvard Shorenstein Center. I just, I, I don't know. I don't know. Do they think we're not going to look into this? Oh, I know what's happening. I know what's happening. They don't care if we look into it. They don't care if we look into it, number one, because that doesn't stop Joan, whatever her name is, getting her millions upon millions of dollars in grant money, both from uh, US sources and foreign sources. It doesn't stop that. So she doesn't care. She doesn't care that Raheem Kassam is talking about her on the National Pulse podcast. In fact, she's probably listening to this right now, enjoying a donut or something along those lines. But she's probably enjoying this quite a lot because it's honey badger. It's in your face. It's, hey, you, you can't do anything about it. You can't stop it. Harvard is, is fully owned. And they're going to continue operating like that. And these people, they get away with it. They get, there, are no, there are no consequences. They're not going to be on the front page of the New York Times. And that brings me to the second reason that they don't care. It's because what they, they look at the nationalpulse.com, and while there's 16 million visits to the site last month, number one, they don't know that, that it's of that scale. Number two, what do they care? What the, what the, what the consumers of conservative media think? There's no way this ends up in the Financial Times. There's no way it ends up in the Times of London. It's, it's stunning, isn't it? Because everything we've told you, everything I've tweeted over the last couple of years as it pertains to the Lincoln Project and the Wuhan lab, everything. Uh, remember, I was the one in advance saying mass mail-in ballot fraud, the Transition Integrity Project. If I didn't know better, I would think that I was controlled opposition, that Raheem Kassam was, because I know so many of the stories before they're even stories. But guess what? That's just from paying attention. <laughs> but if you were conspiratorial enough, you might look at it and be like, how does how does Raheem, how do Raheem and Natalie get their hands on all of this information way before, months before anybody else does? Pay attention. Work your sources. Oh, I don't know. It's something called journalism. People used to do it in this country. How do we know that John Weaver... How did I know back in July last year? Because sources... How did I know about the Transition Integrity Project? Because we looked, we bothered to check if there was something going on. And they don't get, these stories don't get covered and carried on the front page of the New York Times. We were right, Phil Klein was right about CTCL and the Zuckerberg money. Months in advance of anybody else talking about it, Phil Klein came on my show, first time that we talked about this, and and just let rip. And I kind of looked at him thinking, what on earth are you talking about how could it possibly be go back and watch that clip you'll probably see my my disbelief how on earth could there be an organization a private organization that's allowed to dictate the terms of an american election to governmental organizations that are taking money from that private organization but that's exactly what happened they don't deny that's what happened they don't care what you think they don't care if you know because they control the levers of power. And as far as they're concerned, it will take you, and this is true, this is where they're not lying to you. 
it will take you two to three decades, decades, to even begin unraveling that stuff. And it will take the most ferocious of honey badger Republicans or Democrats. I'm, I'm still open to the idea that somewhere deep within the recesses of the Democratic Party of America, there may be some decent people who finally, somewhere along the lines, might want to do the decent thing, might want to put America first, not impeachment first. They're the impeachment first party. But it, they know they know how long this is going to take. It's designed that way. You think you think they would allow it to be the case that one president, in one or two terms, could unravel the apparatus that they've been building for so long? Well, that'd be ludicrous. It would be one of the you know one of the worst, worst, worst forward planning contingency situations anybody could ever imagine and they have an entire body of people and i don't mean 30 people sitting in a room i mean every department every every bureaucracy every think tank every institution every military branch every single thing has a layer of operations within the wider structure that is designed to future proof its own existence to ensure that somebody else can't come along and say, you know what, you guys are pretty redundant, actually. We don't need you anymore. It was President Eisenhower who warned about this very thing. And I don't just mean the military-industrial complex, right? I don't just mean it from that perspective. I just mean the, the bureaucratic complex of everything. You know, America is not a democracy, there will be those among you who who pump your fist and say, "You right, Raheem, he's not a democracy, we're a republic. No, you're a bureaucracy. You're a bureaucracy. So, so is Great Britain. So are most other Western nations now. There isn't. There just isn't the idea of citizen control at the heart of these governing institutions and that not one man one vote but that that philosophical concept of the demos in the heart of everything of the people that's why you opened with we the people it was the people at the heart of it or what legitimizes the institution. It's what legitimizes government. And the greatest example, the single greatest example I've ever seen of a repudiation of democracy, a repudiation of the demos, a repudiation of you, the people, at the heart of it, is this razor-wired fence around your capital. You know, they were very quick to call it the people's house when they fell under attack. When Nancy Pelosi and AOC and all of these others felt like they were under attack. They were scared. By the way, what does it tell you about your representatives? That they are cowering in their offices because of a horned shaman? What does it tell you about these people? representatives used to go into the chamber with their swords in their belts. In the original House of Commons chamber, the members would literally stand two sword lengths apart. That's how they used to measure where they stood. So that you could remind the other that you were prepared to do battle. You're not one sword length away. You're not immediately doing battle. Rhetoric and negotiation and democracy were a part of avoiding violence, avoiding violence, which if you think about it, has been mankind's goal since Dot was trying to figure out ways. That's Thomas Farnan, who'll be joining us in a moment, trying to dial in. <laughs> I should probably bring him in. I've, been, I've kept him on hold a little bit too long. But I was on a roll, <laughs> just avoiding violence, avoiding violence. Messenger video. All right, let's let's bring Thomas Farnan in since he's so keen to be in the conversation here. Let's uh, 
Let's dial him in. Why don't you? Uh, why don't you have a little? Uh, a li- you can have a little listen to one of my favorite new musical tracks. My favorite new musical numbers. While I dial Thomas Farnan into this, can we do it? Can we do it? Can I do I'll it? Circle back. If there's more to convey. Um, I'll have to just circle back with you. We can circle back. I'm happy to circle back. I can circle back. I will have to circle back on that one. But I'll have to circle back. We'll circle back. Circle back. Certainly. Circle back. I will have to circle back on that one. I hate to disappoint you, but I will have to circle back with you on that as well. Now she finally did decide to circle back Jen Psaki. She circles back. I often circle back. I'm going to circle back Jen Psaki. I'll circle back if there's more I can share with you, but I'll circle back if there's more to convey. Um, I'll have to just circle back with you. We can circle back. I'm happy to circle back. I can circle back. I will have to circle back on that one, but I'll have to circle back. We'll circle back, circle back, certainly circle back. I will have to circle back on that one. I hate to disappoint you, but I will have to circle back with you on that as well. I'll circle back. Now she finally I'll circle back. Decide. Tom Farnan. Tom Farnan, you are live on the National Pulse podcast. Hello, Raheem. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well. I figured we couldn't get the uh, couldn't get the uh, Facebook audio thing working, so we'll just we'll d- we'll deal with cell phone for today, and we'll figure it out another time. But I thank you for your time. I'm sorry I'm delayed, uh, and I and I thank you for joining us here today. Uh, most more than anything, Tom, I thank you for writing what has been one of the uh, best trafficked articles in in a couple of weeks over at the National Pulse, uh, probably since your last one, in fact, which is The Insurrection Lie 2. False reports from January the 6th continue to unravel. Uh, The author, ladies and gentlemen, again, is Thomas Farnan, joining us on the line now. Also the author of The Russia Lie, which is the most comprehensive but short and digestible uh, ebook about what happened with Russian collusion and that whole narrative. The RussiaLie.com is where you can pick that up. So, Tom, um, welcome to the show for the first time. We've uh, we've obviously had you on the National Pulse uh, television show before, but uh, but uh, I, this audience is is growing and growing, and I think is I, I'm I won't say larger than what we were doing before, but certainly broader uh, than what we were doing before. We're still in the top something top 10 or whatever it is of of podcasts in the country which is just amazing amazing uh from the audiences well i want to thank the audience for helping us grow like that so i want everybody to get to grips with thomas farnham because he's such an integral part of of what we try to do over at the national pulse which is real news and real investigations thomas i'm going to hand over to you Firstly, what compelled you to put this piece together, which has these big three elements of, of, of how the media is either backtracked or having to overwrite parts of the narrative from January the 6th? Well, I think the big reason that I wrote it is um, I teach constitutional law at a local college here, and I spent a lot of time last semester going over the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. And the First Amendment guarantees the right of people to peaceably assemble and to petition for the redress of freedom. And what happened on December 6th was that people had seen the election, they had issues with what happened at the election, and they had a grievance. And they were allowed to go to Washington, D.C. and peaceably assemble. Um, The official reports, however, conflated those who were peaceably assembling with whatever was going on at the Capitol. And we'll talk about that later. But to the extent someone did something criminal at the Capitol, breached the Capitol, you can't claim those people who were peaceably assembling for, for doing that. Um, every time there's a protest over anything, there are there is that type, sort of behavior where someone overdoes it. Mm. And you cannot uh, blame those who are just exercising their constitutional rights for that. So that was the primary distinction I wanted to make, um, that let's cut it out. Let's stop calling all these people insurrectionists. Let's stop docking them. Uh, and let's permit them to air their grievance. Um, in the time since I wrote my article on January 13th, Time Magazine 
has helpfully published a description <laughs> of what happened during the election. And they essentially say, yes, uh, the, the election was manipulated. Now, whether uh, or not Tom, it was, Tom, Tom, let me ask you this. How shocking was that to you, that it was such an in-your-face admission of all of the things? Because I know that you have, have watched, when you're not on the National Pulse, you've watched the National Pulse, uh, and, and you've, you've given me your feedback in real time. And I, and I know you, and I know your, 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 loyally, your loyally mind. I know that you are cautious. I know you are thoughtful. I know you recognize a lot of the perils of youth in me um, and so sort of when I broadcast I kind of have at the back of my mind whether or not my what I'm saying passes the Farnan test am I going to get a text message or an email from Thomas Farnan saying you were right on this however this was a bit of hyperbole sometimes I thought to myself on the run-up to, to the November the 3rd election when when we would cover the transition integrity project when we were talking about CTCL and all of this you know it does occur to me it should always occur to reporters certainly should always occur to editors is this too far now we continued on our reporting because i obviously made the decision that it wasn't uh too far but it's very rare that a a right-wing news broadcaster a news organization reporter gets vindicated by the front page of time magazine tom yes i i uh i thought reporting before the election on those things were excellent. Uh, I didn't do a deep dive before the election. I thought that there would be some fraud because I listened to uh, Attorney General Bill Barr in June say that mail-in ballots were a disaster and they were going to lead to chaos. And he said that on CNN, and I quote that uh, in these articles. Um, and I think I was on your show in October, and I said, you know, Trump's going to have to come overcome the fraud. And the conventional wisdom at the time was that it was 2 or 5%, but but that he could do it. But as I sat there on election night watching, you know, once the Las Vegas oddsmakers threw it for Trump, you know, in the 90% range, I knew those people don't mess around. <laughs> and, and that, you know, he's going to win this election. Uh, they're dealing with money. They're not dealing with, with politics. And then something strange happened. The, the voting shut down. And these paper ballots, these mail-in ballots came in, mostly from uh, uh, the inner city and swing states, and it looked like shenanigans had occurred. Right. I read your excellent reporting then after the election, where you were the first, I think, out of the gate on the statistical anomalies, and I agreed with that. Right. I thought these were statistical anomalies that were inexplicable, and they should be investigated. And Tom, I, 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 I never, I never intended, and ne never did I say that this was anything more than circumstantial evidence. But what they did was they bore out a case for further in interrogation and investigation. Now we've never got to do that further interrogation and investigation uh, across all of the different places that we suspect that these different things, whether it was mail-in ballots, whether it was non-correct signature checks uh you know even if you're a machine person whether it was the machines we've never actually been allowed to go through and check these things out and that i think is you know where where a lot of the frustration a lot of where january the 6th came from and i think that was the purpose of january 6th uh united states senators were proposing that before they do the election certification the question be returned to the state and the states give some kind of assurance here about these things. You know, this was an election conducted during a pandemic. And it certainly looked to me like uh, state government officials were taking advantage of the circumstances in a place like here in Pennsylvania and sort of tweaking the procedures to give an advantage to their side. And I did want that investigated. Uh, if the law said that the signatures had to be matched, I wanted to be sure that the signatures were matched. I did not have any assurances that anything like that was happening. Um, there were, you know, about 20 statistical anomalies. The one that got me was that Republicans won everywhere down ballot, but they didn't win the presidency. Mm -hmm. And I saw a tweet that said, you know, you can't have coattails, but no coat. <laughs> And that always stuck with me. That, that didn't make sense to me. And you are permitted, you know, in the constitutional scheme, if you're a Republican senator, to 
advocate in the United States Senate for a procedure where the states, you know, do this kind of assurance. That's what Trump uh, was advocating in his speech to his supporters when he called on them, in his words, to peacefully and patriotically let their voices be heard. Tom, let's let's um, let's, let's hear that. Let's hear those words ourselves one more time. And after this, we're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down. Anyone you want, but I think right here we're going to walk down to the Capitol, and we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. We have come to demand that Congress do the right thing and only count the electors who have been lawfully slated. Lawfully slated. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. Today we will see whether Republicans... And just before we come back to Thomas Farnan, I want to now play you, ladies and gentlemen, one of the clips that the Trump defense actually played the other day. And this is goes right to what the president was saying there up at the Ellipse. Lawfully slated. Lawfully slated. I have an objection because 10 of the 29 electoral votes cast by Florida were cast by electors not lawfully certified. I object to the votes from the state of Wisconsin, which were not should not be legally sa- sa- no certified. Or reg- Mr. President, I object to the certificate from the state of Georgia on the grounds that the electoral votes no, were no not... Debate. There's no debate. Then I object to the certificate. Uh, from the state of North Carolina. I object to the 15 votes from the state of North Carolina. Um, I object. I object to the certificate from the state of Alabama. The electors were not lawfully certified. Is it signed by a senator? Not as of yet, Mr. President. In that case, the objection cannot be entertained. The objection cannot be entertained. Counting debate is uh, not in order. Ballot. Even with the there is no debate in order. Is it signed by a senator? There is, right no there is no debate. There is no debate in the joint government. session. There is no debate. There is no debate. There is no debate. And the mass Please come to order. The objection cannot be received. But the Russian Section 18, Title III of the United States Code prohibits debate in the joint session. I do not wish to debate. I wish to ask, is there one United States senator who will join me in this letter? There is no debate. There is no debate. The gentlewoman will suspend. And that wasn't the Republicans from January the 6th. That was the Democrats from January 2017 doing precisely what the President of the United States, Donald J. Trump, urged his supporters to go and protest in favor of on January the 6th. The same exact process as the Democrats had very willfully, uh, you know, relieved themselves of. Um, Joe Biden, in fact, presiding over that and having to quiet down, tamp down the shouts in the Senate chamber as people got up and started to object in the very same way that the media pilloried and everybody else called, you know, insurrectionists and seditionists and coomongers for when they had an R and not a D after their names, Tom. Yes, and I think if in 2016... Uh, that election was conducted under these circumstances, and the tables were flipped. If President, if, if Trump had beat Hillary Clinton uh, because of these makeshift rules made in you know swing states uh, during a pandemic, uh, where you have a, a very big constitutional objection, because remember Article Two of the Constitution uh, places in the province of state legislatures the rules and regulations for elections. When you have state officials who are not legislators doing it, then that's grounds for an objection. If you had this situation in 2016, you know, the person presiding over the Senate uh, would have, could have, perhaps even should have said, hey, you're making a good point there. Let's take a look at this. Well, I mean, Tom, they, they, they didn't even accept the results of, of the 2016 election without these things in place. So, of course, they wouldn't have, have, have accepted them, you know, with them in play. 
Exactly. Um, the, the, the key is you're, you're allowed to make the objection, um, but, but you're right. Uh, you know, my, one of my problems with this, and, and we have the Russia Lie published at therussialie.com over at the National Pulse. Mm-hmm. One of my problems with this is the extent to which the FBI uh, is called in to assist in making political narratives. Right. Um, you know, in this, in this case, you have the police officer that died from the protest, and there was no direct causal connection. Well, so let's, let's that, that, that brings us, that's a natural um, segue into your latest article, and it's called The Insurrection Lie 2. It's part two of this, the false reports from January the 6th continuing to unravel. And and as you say, Tom, it brings us on to what we immediately w- w- were being told, uh, in not just in the immediate aftermath, but as the, the events of January the 6th were still unfolding. People were reporting on things as if they were not just factually accurate, but may never be questioned, should not be, uh, you know, nobody could scratch your head and say, hold on a minute, can we please have a conversation about this? That's why, Tom, it took me so long to come out with the timeline of events, and I was still the first to come out with it. But it was several days later because we were all kind of living in shock. The shock of actually seeing that happen, the shock of knowing deep down knowing that the authorities would have, should have, could have known about any potential threats in advance of this thing, knowing that a pipe bomb isn't just something that you build along the way from the ellipse to the Capitol building and then figure out where the RNC and the DNC are and and place them cautiously underneath a a welcome mat or whatever it was. And, and, And knowing, Tom... And, and you'll, you know, forgive my flippancy about this, but there is so much that I think you can only deal with in terms of the starkness of the lie. You can only deal with it via snark because some of it is so absolutely demonstrably ludicrous. And that takes us on to the first part of your your new piece, which is the the narrative over uh, uh, Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick. Now, Media Matters this week, Tom, had an article up about the National Pulse and Revolver.News and said, you know, right-wing media spreading conspiracy theories about death of Brian Sicknick. No, that's, that's precisely the opposite of what I've done. The, the left-wing media, CNN, the New York Times, Media Matters, all of those guys spread a conspiracy theory. A conspiracy theory being that which is not true, which is a fantastical recollection of events that is not true, does not line up with reality. They are the ones who spread the conspiracy theory, Tom. Yes, and, and on January 13th, uh, we were early in identifying you know, you had even conservative publications saying that Officer Sicknick was slain and murdered. And we said, wait a second, not so fast. What do we know about this? We know that he had a stroke the next day. Mm. We know that the night after the protest, he texted his brother and he said, I'm fine. You know, there was some pepper spray, but I'm fine. He didn't identify any kind of injury. We know that when it was first reported that he had died as a result of the protest. The Capitol Police issued a statement and said that's not true. But all of a sudden, we have the New York Times reporting that uh, he was hit by a fire extinguisher. And we never saw the source for that. We never saw the basis for that. And in the time that has elapsed since January 13th, we've learned that isn't true. And I think you, uh, you published... Uh, and this is why Media Matters is after you. <laughs> you published the piece that showed this is what everyone said about the fire extinguisher. Now we know it's not true. And we have the uncommon circumstance now of the New York Times. I don't think they call it a retraction, but it's essentially <laughs> that. Yes. Where they say there's no fire extinguisher. That's amazing. So much of this uh, outrage that we've experienced in the last month was built on the fake news premise that Officer Sicknick was bludgeoned to death by a fire extinguisher. And and by the way, Tom, 
that's that's not to take anything away from the fact that a Capitol Hill police officer died after a, an awful situation, a, a, a riot at the Capitol, and, and I don't want anybody taking away from this in any way, shape, or form that Thomas Farnan or I are here excusing the behavior of the violent rioters or, 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 or encouraging anything like that or glorifying anything like that. I leave the glorification of violence for the political left. I leave the glorification of, of rioters and the bailing out of them for Kamala Harris and everybody that that has for the last year and frankly for the last 50 years encouraged Marxists to attack the United States and its institutions. That's that's a very left-wing thing to do and we don't do that here. But what we do is we point out where the details are missing in a, in a broader conversation because the details are the important parts. Tom, you talked about the ritualization of this lie and, and, and that in a large part revolved around uh, Brian Sicknick effectively being laid in state in the in the capitol building something that has only happened a handful of times for a handful of people but they laid him in state and filed around his 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 body while while perpetuating what we now know to be a lie that he was hit that was clobbered in the head with a fire extinguisher by a protester and that's what caused him death and he was he was laid in honor and laid in honor mm-hmm. is what you know private not from the government or uh, an honor that they're given, and only five sure. Americans have ever gotten that honor. And um, the honor was based on this false causal connection that they made with this phantom fire extinguisher that the Trump crowd bludgeoned him to death. And I say that was to ritualize uh, essentially the law. You know, once you do something like that, it's very hard to convince people to look at the sorts of distinctions that I'm making in my article and to figure out what really happened. And the saddest thing about that is that his family had uh, asked that the death not be used politically. Yeah. And if you're doing that sort of thing, you are using the death politically. Um, and I think I was, I was on with you, uh, you know, when, when uh, all of this, uh, was being revealed, and I said it's a desecration to do something like that. You know, I don't, I don't think, uh, you know, we have to be very careful here. Uh, a man is is dead. Yeah. Um, the circumstances are horrible. Yeah. But but so is this level of falsification. And I don't. Uh, and I don't think. I, I, I don't have any problem with him having uh, uh, been lying in honor, by the way. You know, that's not the point here. They could have laid him in honor with the facts surrounding his death correct and not politicized, as his family wanted. But, you know, it's very easy, Tom, because yeah. I think his father is, is, is in his 80s now. So I think it's pretty easy for people to ignore the wishes of an old man because, you know, what's an old man going to do in the face of all of this? And, and I really do feel sorry uh, uh, for his family for, for all that. I mean, the, the only other people, as you say, who have had this honor uh, uh, bestowed upon them, a, a, a John Gibson, a Capitol Hill police officer who was one of two police officers killed in the U.S. Capitol during a shooting rampage. The other one, the other officer being Officer Jacob J. Chestnut, Jr., uh, Rosa Parks, I probably don't have to remind people who Rosa Parks is, the Reverend Billy Graham, and now, as you say, the fifth being Officer Brian Sicknick. Now, uh, again, I'm not saying that he shouldn't have been in that, it, it, you know, um, lane in honour at the at the Capitol Rotunda. That, that, that's a, that's a, a consideration beyond me. But what I do believe is if, if you are going to lay somebody in honour at the Capitol Rotunda, then at least have the decency to tell the public the truth about the circumstances of death. And by the way, if you don't know the circumstances of death, that's fine too. Just say, hey, there was a riot at the Capitol on January the 6th. A police officer has died as a result of that. We're going to lay him in honor. And and every single person would have been like, yep, yeah, that's fine. That Absolutely, we totally agree with that. And that is the, the right and proper thing to do. Instead, Tom, they told us a, they fabricated a detail regarding his death to politicize and, as you say, ritualize that lie. Yeah. And it's a part of a larger narrative that they're trying to tell. And the first part of that narrative is those hundreds of thousands of pe- people who were there to peacefully protest were somehow part of an insurrection. That the president himself was somehow a part of the insurrection. You know, the, 
the FBI should be making distinctions about who entered the Capitol and why. You wrote a great, uh, the National Polls wrote a great piece about um, the shaman. <laughs> Everyone who's a trumpet knows that guy is not a trumpet. He's not one of them. Yep. He's, he's, he's something very different. What were his motivations? Why was he there? I keep seeing pictures of someone with a Confederate flag, and I've seen some early reporting. It's probably Rick Wilson. Person, <laughs> that that person is part of a false flag. I've been to Trump events. I've seen Trump events. You don't see Confederate flags. You really do. That's part of a left-wing uh, caricature yeah. that's meant to perpetrate the idea that we're racist or something. So who is that guy? Why doesn't the FBI tell us that? It's, it's such a good um, point. And by the way, I'm not saying that people, especially in the South, that people don't still have the Confederate flag uh, you know, on 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 things, uh, on license plates, on you know, it, it was it, for a very long time, up until very recently, it was part of state flags, right? So that's not to say that they don't exist, and that's not to say that that people don't still use them, but it but it is to say explicitly, isn't it, Tom? That actually you don't see that from Trump supporters, you don't see them waving it around you, because they understand what the media will do to them if they do more than anything else. They understand the implications of what the media will do to them. If they're seen doing it it's it's obvious that most of them don't even feel like fl fl flying a confederate flag is an appropriate thing to do but in addition to that conservatives and trump supporters know that they are studied harder than anyone else there is a microscope on them at all times and, and that's what causes cause all this stuff into in, into question Tom, i do have to hurry us along unfortunately because we're approaching the hour of this show uh today and uh we had natalie winters on before you talking through some of her stories so just we, we just need to hurry this along a, a tiny bit and i want to move you on to the onto the time magazine stuff that you raise in your article as well as the doubling down of the lie Yes, the, you know, the Time Magazine article was uh, just amazing because we were there scrambling to find evidence, to find inferences that said, you know, statistically, this is not right. And then you have the group that did it apparently come out and confess because they're proud of it. And just the words of this article, you know, I quote some, uh, but, it, but it's massively important for a country to understand that it didn't happen accidentally. They're talking about the results of the 2020 election. The system didn't work magically. Democracy is not self-executing. They are saying there that they did something. They did things that they're very proud of uh, involving mail-in ballots to assure a result in the 2020 election. Now, let's put aside whether what they did was legal or illegal. You are permitted to see that happen in real time, as Americans did on November 3rd, and say, time out, I have a grievance. Democracy can and should be self-executed. We don't need the credential police to jump in and do this kind of thing. And that supports the reason for the protest on January 6th. You know, for, for any protest under the First Amendment, you don't even have to show the legitimacy of your grievance. You are permitted to go and protest. Here, though, this article, I believe, shows the legitimacy of the grievance. Our guest is Thomas Fon, and he's the author of The Russia Lie. You can get it at therussialie.com. Thomas, uh, just before we let you go here, the, the final part of all of this um, is is the doubling down and and the the continued because they can't afford to fully back away. As 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 pleased as I am that we're finally getting the CNNs and the New York Times of the world to start and like you said they don't call them retractions they should be full throated retractions. Anybody with 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 you know ethics in mind when they do reporting would look at that story and the way they've told it and the way they've repeated it and doubled down on it time and time again about Officer Sicknick would issue a front, frankly, a front page retraction and an apology, an apology to his family, an apology to him, an apology to the American public, an apology to journalism for the fact that they have repeated for weeks something that isn't true, that has, that has no basis as we currently know it 
in fact. And it's fine that when the facts change, your reporting changes, that's what reporters are supposed to do, but they are also supposed to. They hold themselves up to, a, at least pretend to hold themselves up to a standard of ethics in journalism that just doesn't seem to apply anymore, Tom. I completely agree with that. Um, and it's, it's not only the journalists. You have the journalists either seating or, or being seated by the people there in Washington, Republican and Democrat. You have the former Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, uh, calling the people who were there to peacefully protest a mob and, you know, expressing, you know, anger at, at them and the former president. And, you know, the 75 million who voted for Trump uh, don't appreciate that. Mm. And, and what this is intended to do is to marginalize them. And they understand that. And they very much appreciate uh, the reporting you're doing for him because uh, it, it helps them, obviously, not to be marginalized. But Tom, you know, I, I just I keep thinking about this. When I, keep, when I think about January the 6th, what I think is, is what a friend of mine said to me almost immediately after the, all the barricades went up. And he said, this means that the last people, the last members of the public to be able to freely walk up the steps of the Capitol include rioters. And that shouldn't be the case. America shouldn't be in a position whereby the last time that place is open to the public is, uh, you know, for people who have defiled it. And again, I'm not saying that everybody out there. In fact, the the 99% of people out there that day, I would I would hazard a guess, statistically, 99% of people were not involved in anything marginally close to unlawful behavior uh, on the steps of the Capitol. But there were those people who were, and it sh- we should not allow them to be the last people to walk up those steps, not least, Tom, because of the implications of your right to petition your government for the redress of grievances. Any final thoughts here for us, Tom? Yeah, I don't think it's going to be the last. I don't think this is sustainable. I don't think anyone's buying it. Even people on their side are not buying it. They, they are questioning it and wondering why. And, uh, you know, you have the New York Times retraction. You have the Media Matters piece where they try to criticize you yesterday, but they really can't. If you read that article, you see that, you know, they're trying to call you a conspiracy theorist or whatever, but they really can't, you know, lay a punch there. So I'm, I'm confident. Well, I certainly hope so, and we will keep on our uh, intrepid reporting. I'm, I'm so grateful to you, Tom, for... And, you know, just to let the audience in on on a little bit of our back and forths, uh, I'm hoping you don't mind, is that sometimes I won't get back to Tom on his articles for a couple of hours, and in those in the space of those few hours, Tom, you go back and you do revisions and you do revisions. I think you probably sent me four drafts of this latest one, and then sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I'm grateful for the fact that I don't get to reply in time, because your revisions, I mean, you just improve the product every single time. I know you look at this with a very, uh, uh, you know, you're very strict and very um, stringent about the way you uh, allow your own opinions to color things, but for you it's, it's facts, 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 and we're incredibly grateful for all the just brilliant work that you've done on the Russia lie uh, and on the insurrection lie. Well, I'm, I'm grateful for all that you do as well, Raheem, and, and editing and, and looking at it and your, your contribution. So uh, that's, that's why I'm trying to tweak the product and, and make it good. But I'm, I'm very pleased with this one, and it's, it's really going gangbusters out there, and I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the All right. forum to do that. My pleasure. Anytime. Thomas Farnan there, the author of The Russia Lie, therussialie.com, and also the latest piece, The Insurrection Lie. Part two, the false reports from January the 6th continue to unravel. Well, I had to, I had to figure myself out there for a second. <laughs> I had the Bluetooth up, the outro down, I love producing this show in real time, and I think I'm going to just improve at it. I've never done this before. The only time I've done this before was when I used to do a podcast back in London, and I literally used to just record it on my phone. 
we'd sit in a glass room with the phone on the table. You can imagine how good the acoustics were. So I've got all the board and I've got all my different buttons and everything now and I like the way it is, but I've never done it before. And so every so often I'll lose myself and I'll make a mistake or there'll be a delay and that delay isn't a cut. I'm not cutting, I'm not post-production. What it is, is it's me going, sitting here in silence and going, oh gosh, what do I do? <laughs> but I like, I like to read you in on this. I like you to be a part of it. And if you want to be a part of what we're doing at the National Pulse, please head on over to thenationalpulse.com forward slash support. We do not take money from big corporates. We do not take money from billionaires. We do not take money from millionaires. We are you funded. It's thenationalpulse.com forward slash support. Without you, we can't do this podcast. We can't do the website. We can't keep bringing you real news and investigations. So I implore you, ladies and gentlemen out there, if you want to see a real news, proliferate and be a part of it today. Thenationalpulse.com forward slash support. I'll see you again tomorrow. 